Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Christina Ortega, who was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Christina is currently the coordinator of Justice, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Mayfield Senior School in Pasadena, California. She is a minister of liturgical movement in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and serves on two of the planning committees for the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. She has contributed to the book, Creating Spaces for Women in the Catholic Church, to be released in summer 2023. Outside of ministry, Christina is a docent at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes, a Mexican-American art, culture, and history museum in Los Angeles. She and her family are members of Dolores Mission Parish in Boyle Heights. Christina, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited. This is great. I've known you for many years through uh, different networks, connections in ministry, probably just because we're both women in the church who take our faith very (laughs) seriously. And so we're involved and we show up in similar spaces frequently. You are an educator, a dancer, a writer, a passionate Catholic, plus a mom and a wife. How did you come to know who you are and how you're meant to serve God and God's people? slowly (laughs) (laughs) and with an amazing network of people Mm. I think of like all of those things that I am now and I I suppose you know in college or earlier you could probably have seen sparks of each of those so it's not a shock that I am any of the things I am now where I am right now is a really good place for me but it's taken a lot of very intentional work to get here (laughs) Say more about how the people and the connections along the way helped you to discover your call. Mostly lay women, but with theological backgrounds or pastoral ministry backgrounds, women who have been doing things that maybe people would raise their eyebrows at, like, oh, a woman shouldn't be in that role or this role or studying that. But I have very intentionally sought out sort of those trailblazers women who serve in LA as a director of parish life or a pastoral associate, we might call it, or really strong educators, older women who are like have children now who are maybe in college or older, who their kids turned out great. So I thought you're probably a great mom. Mm. Um, So I really leaned on my network of of women. There have been wonderful men in my life. I don't want to discount that. (laughs) But for the most part, the people who I have looked to have been my teachers and youth ministers and campus ministers and people at my parish. Also, I have very intentionally chosen to surround myself with people who are very justice-oriented, who are faith-filled and are Catholic and base the way that they live ethically in community, the way that they fight for the rights of immigrants and of workers because of their faith. Mm. And so they've really challenged me to be as integrated and as holistic as possible. I feel like I'm in a good place because of all of those people. What is it for you about faith that invites a person to advocate for immigrants and workers and others who are on the margins or maybe are oppressed or don't have the rights that they deserve? It doesn't make sense to me how one can say I am a faith-filled person and then not go do something about it. Separate from having like 
an interior life, a personal spirituality. Like, yes, yes, you can do that. And a Mm -hmm. school that I, that I worked at a Dominican school, uh, they would say they were contemplatives in action. It's the both and a quiet, personal, interior spirituality, prayer life. And that prayer has to push you to do something outside of yourself. I hope we can come back to that. But before we do, I'd like to hear what you would say about what it's like to be a woman leader Um, in the Catholic Church. More both and. Both frustrating and disheartening. And I'm disappointed frequently and I'm angered frequently. And it is joy-filled. It is intellectually stimulating. It is spiritually and socially stimulating. It fills me. And I wake up every morning going, why do I do this? (laughs) I sometimes wonder, like, is the church trying to get people to leave? Like, I don't fault anyone, particularly young people and particularly women who do say, I just can't be here anymore. I I need to leave this space. I get it because I feel like that often. But as long as the joys and the the peace that I find in it continue to outweigh the challenges, I'll stay. So that's why you stay is because you find more joy and peace. I do. I do. And I think it has particularly to do with the parish community that I happen to be part of. They remind me of that joy. Also, my faith is connected a lot to my culture. Mm. And so I find celebration in that as well. Again, both and. It is a challenge and a joy. I'm not sure if you feel the freedom, but you're welcome to talk about what particularly is frustrating if you'd like. Sure. I mean, the frustration I see a lot in solidarity with my students. I've been a high school teacher for 20 years. That's all I know. (laughs) And when my students say they don't feel like they belong, particularly students who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. When they say there's not a place for me, like, oh, I'm even starting to cry now thinking about that. When a young woman will say, well, I want to do ministry, but I'm not really called to be like a religious sister, but I can't be a priest. I'm crushed. Like, you know, and so my most of my career has also been in girls' schools. And so knowing that there's this stained glass ceiling, mm-hmm. that's a challenge. And I've seen it when I was a grad student. I guess now we would call them microaggressions about being a woman studying theology. I remember I was invited to a parish to lead a RCIA class one Sunday. Let me just define that for the listeners. The right of Christian initiation for adults, which basically means the workshop, the training program for people who want to formally join the Catholic Church as, right. as adults. Right. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> you were you. Do- doing an RCIA workshop. I was doing an RCIA class. I can't tell you even what the topic was at uh-huh. this point, but, yeah. I, but what I do remember is the older gentleman who was another catechist, another teacher. So he was not someone who was joining the church. He was there to lead the people. And he said to me, and I'm you know, 22 years old at this point, he says, um, what is a pretty girl like you doing studying theology? Oh, gosh. And I thought, I don't entirely know what you mean, but I know what you mean. You know, I just felt like he patted me on the head and said, like, oh, that's cute. You know, and so that kind of frustration of not being taken seriously, 
and and not knowing what my place is as a woman in the the global church, but even more specifically in my local church in LA. Although we do have wonderful women who are in the ACC, the Archdiocesan like offices, we do have wonderful women leaders there. But then in my former parishes, not so much in my current parish because they're amazing. Um, <laughs> but just wondering what what my path is and where I can go and and how I can be, then be a teacher of young women when I know I have to say there's a limit. We tell them in all other aspects of their life, you can do anything. You can be anything you want, except in your faith life. Mm-hmm. So that's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. You know that I used to teach high school theology too, not as <laughs> uh, seasoned at it. <laughs> I was teaching scripture and I remember this a really devout, serious young student, a woman, when we were studying the resurrection story, Easter, and we were looking closely at the scripture and noticing all the details of what happened, it's very cliche, but I remember seeing the light bulbs go off in her head. And she was like, wait a minute, if women had this role (laughs) at this major moment (laughs) in Mm -hmm. our faith story (laughs) in salvation history, she started to kind of just ask all these questions. And I remember I I was like, please don't stop asking those questions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you also notice in your own life and ministry, Christina, how there's ways where you're able to fuel the passion that the young women discover for justice, for the church, for their faith? I have. You know, over the years, the feeling when a student says like, oh, I never thought about it like that. Or no one at at my elementary school or none of my other theology teachers, you know, said it that way. That, oh, I love that. So that's my ego going like, oh, (laughs) like, I love that. Um, but, But I do get the, the occasional emails of a student who happened to go off to Catholic university and an email like, I took this class and I thought it was going to be boring, but then the professor said something. And then I remembered something you said in class mm. and I said it and I looked like a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there are those moments when I was a senior, a 12th grade teacher, I had a lot of freedom to create my own curriculum. Mm. And so some of the things that I was very intentional about including was a unit on mujerista theology mm. and womanist theology and Asian and Asian American women's theology. And it was in those moments where these 17 and 18 year old girls, young women would say, I finally see myself in all of this God talk. Wow! It, it doesn't seem so abstract. I get it now because the way that we've talked about it before was very theoretical. And I went, okay, I'll take notes and I'll take that, you know, put that on the test. But when we could talk about it tied to specifically being a woman and then specifically encultured, mm-hmm. they would say, oh, yes, now that resonates with me. Mm. Now I understand that. That sounds familiar. That's my language. I was grateful that, that my administration for many years allowed me to include those pieces because if young people, again, specifically women, can't see themselves, what's keeping them? A few years ago, the Pew Research Center did a study and they said that the average age of when people leave organized religion is 13. Mm. 13. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What what are we doing wrong that by 13, they're like, nope, peace, I'm out. So when I can give them something 
that maybe makes them want to take one step back towards their faith, I'll do it. (laughs) So ultimately, as a minister, as a woman Mm -hmm. who's building up the church, the reign of God, helping God's peace and justice to flourish here on earth, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just just something little. You know, know, thank God you're not alone. You're in a community of others that we're doing this together. (laughs) Okay. So, so in this though, what I think I'm hearing you talk about is really how you're seeking to help young women, teenage girls, spiritual seekers come to a place of belonging in their faith and recognize how their particular identities, whether that's their gender or their culture, are welcome and needed. It's necessary for them to express who they truly are, even if it's a queer identity, right? Like all Mm -hmm. of that needs to be expressed in part of the church, it sounds like. So can you unpack that a little bit? I'd like to hear what it is about the variety of identities and the creating an inclusive church that helps the church be more wholesome. Oh, gosh. Um, When I'm in a classroom setting, I know that a student can't learn if they don't feel safe. It doesn't matter. I can be the, the content knowledge expert on the whole planet. I'm the most charismatic, loving teacher. (laughs) Right. But if a student doesn't feel safe, then they've got all these barriers up, right? And so no matter what I say, they're not going to internalize it. I think the same way with the church. Mm -hmm. If I don't feel safe, and I'm not just sometimes, unfortunately, it's for, for another episode physically safe but but emotionally psychologically spiritually safe if I don't feel like I can walk into a parish a youth group meeting a parish council meeting and just exhale and be how could I have space one to receive God's love but then also to reflect it if I am constantly in a state of hyper vigilance and hyper awareness and anxiety I can't let anyone in and I can't shine my own light Mm. so to make spaces where not only regardless of who you are but because of who you are you feel safe then you can feel God's love you can give God's love I'm a woman and I'm 43 and I'm uh, you know native English speaker and Mexican American. And, you know, so I have those perspectives. And then there's someone who has 180 degrees difference than me. And I need that. And they need me because we're more complete. So again, it's not regardless of who you are, the church loves you. It's because of who you are. It's we need you and you need us and we need each other. And that's what makes, whether it's my classroom or my church, that's what makes us fuller and better and deeper and broader and wider and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. What is it about culture in particular? One of the things that you do is you volunteer at the Mexican American Art Center there mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. You just mentioned how you emphasize Mujerista theology, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you have maybe womenist theologies in mm-hmm. your classroom and Asian feminine theologies as well. Why 
is it important to decenter whiteness yeah. as we create these inclusive church spaces so that we're creating spaces that help more people to know that they are needed, that they belong? At the Religious Ed Congress every year, this conference, you know, for Catholic educators from around the world, we always have this big opening event. There's 10,000 people in an arena. And I look around and it is, while international is also mostly the Church of LA. And I look around and the Church of LA is a multicultural, mostly not white church. (laughs) We are Latine, we are Filipino, we are Vietnamese. And so to center white or European theology is to ignore the reality Mm -hmm. (laughs) of what the church really is. And if we are a small C Catholic church, if we really are a universal church, there's so much more to the universe than just (laughs) (laughs) white Northern European theological and philosophical thought. How can we be universal if we ignore the brilliance that has come out of Latin America and Africa and Asia. It's part of the quilt. It's different facets of the same beautiful gem. Mm. So we have to. For me, and I have said this in a variety of different venues, but I can't separate my Catholicism from my Mexicanness. Like, I don't know what things I do because I'm Mexican versus what I do because I'm Catholic. Like, they're so intertwined. Mm. How can we limit our, our theological thought? Our, and also, like, our, our practices, how we run parishes, yeah. <laughs> how we understand leadership structures, the types of sources we rely on. You know, we, we can't just say, like, well, if it wasn't published in a book, <laughs> like, then it's clearly not, you know, we have to honor storytelling and personal experience. And now you're working as a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional mm-hmm. at a Catholic women's high school. It's a different setting than a parish, but I'd like to hear you explain uh, why this is a necessary and core part of Catholic curriculum and why every Catholic education institution ought to be centered on creating a diverse and equitable and inclusive community. Yes, it should. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm so grateful to the school that I'm working at now who saw that. It, it wasn't like I worked here for many years and I kept proposing it and carved out a niche. It was, no, the school created a position mm. because they said this is so important to us. And then they went out and found someone to fill the position. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm really really lucky to be in a place that supports this. Okay, but why is it important? Because the core of our belief is incarnational theology, right? That God didn't lower God's self by becoming human. God lifted up humanity. God made us more like God. And that if I'm supposed to protect the imago Dei, the image of God and the dignity of every person, part of that includes that person's culture, socioeconomic status, gender identity, all of the things. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of the different yeah. So if I'm supposed to honor the dignity, uplift the human person, build the kingdom through, you know, making sure that our systems are equitable and just, of course DEI is going to be part of a Catholic school. I will die on this hill. I will <laughs> fight this. I have heard the argument... This is all wrapped up, of course, in the political sphere of our times, but it's yeah. it's not 
Catholic. It's too political. It's pushing an agenda. No, no, no. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's promoting not, the reign so, of God. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's you know, and and again, I've also said this a hundred times. We do DEI work not in spite of being Catholic, yeah. but because we are a Catholic school. Yeah. And I don't understand how we wouldn't. Mm. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So, I mean, you started to touch on the challenges of the work, which is that it's been politicized. Right. There's some mess there of how do you professionally and pastorally respond to the resistance? I'm right. curious about what tips and suggestions you might have for other educators out there who are maybe being told that they shouldn't make people of privilege feel uncomfortable <laughs> in their classrooms. Oh, well, interesting. <laughs> That's a, a big conversation. There's a difference between feeling uncomfortable mm. and feeling unsafe. Yeah. No child should walk into my classroom and feel unsafe. Right. But discomfort is how we grow. Yeah. Will you be uncomfortable? Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, you might be. And it's okay. It is okay to feel uncomfortable. Mm. We will push through it. We will process it. We will move to the other side of discomfort. It is different than feeling unsafe. Mm. These are not my own words, but you know, if you're used to privilege, then equality feels like oppression. Mm. How do we move through that? Students will say like, well, I'm only 15. It's not my fault that this system is unjust or that this happened. I'm like, no, no, it's not your fault. But now you know about it. Do something about it. Mm. So that's a starting point is making sure people understand the difference between discomfort and not being safe. It's tricky when you're working with teenagers in a high school because they're children and a Catholic school is supposed to partner with the parents. That's sort of the premise of Catholic education. But when the school and the parents don't see eye to eye, I think first the school just has to decide, are we doing this or are we not doing it? Mm. And then the school can just be honest and say, we're just doing this. This is our program. And perhaps this isn't the best place for you to be if you are not comfortable with our program, which then is also really hard because the state of Catholic education, we are desperate. We, we need students and, yeah. you know, schools are closing left and right. In fact, one of our local high schools is closing at the end of this year and mm. a couple of elementary schools are closing. So anyways, so that's a whole other challenge. I guess the last thing I wanted to say is about making things political. I mean, I would argue that Jesus was political. Mm. <laughs> there's there's a whole lot of politics wrapped up in first century Palestine that Jesus was walking through. We don't have to make it partisan. Yeah. So that's also different. If we just keep falling back on what the gospel says, on the principles of Catholic social teaching, maybe political, but not partisan. Mm, mm, amen. So DEI work today, it's about creating an inclusive community, regardless mm -hmm. of culture, gender, sexuality. What do you say? Gender expression? I don't know all the right <laughs> words. Help me out, sister. <laughs> Friend. All, all of the things. All, right? all, of, but, all of the pieces of your social identity. <laughs> yeah. Is it also, too, about accommodating people with differences in learning styles yes. and disabilities, helping people to have the accommodations that they need? Is that part of your work? It is tangential to uh -huh. my work. Yeah. So learning differences, also uh, neurodiverse students, mm. students with things that would just even prevent them from getting up and down the stairs from one classroom oh. to the next. Yeah. Um, so there are other people on our staff who are specifically 
for those, uh, you know, we have some learning specialists who work with students who maybe come in with an IEP or various accommodations. Oh, an individualized education Sorry. plan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, so so things like students who need, you know, extra test taking time, yeah, they yeah. need their tests read out loud to them rather than reading it. Anyways, right. So all of those are, are part of it. I would like to see Catholic schools in general be better about that. That's sort of a soft spot in my heart that, that I think Catholic schools need to really think about how inclusive they are when we're talking about students with different learning needs. Part of it is that we are small schools and it's we don't have teachers who are trained but we could get them trained, but then we have to pay them more and then we have to raise tuition and then we're leaving out right. like there, there's all these things. Um, I think that Catholic schools can and should do a better job of being inclusive of learning differences, neurodiversity, um, things like that. Yeah. And physical challenges, maybe is a better mm-hmm. word than disabilities, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you're kind of touching on here, which I think is worth highlighting a little, is how effective ministry can be constrained by economic limitations, right? In order to really do the work that God is calling us to do as a faith community, Mm -hmm. we need financial support. Part of the work of justice is like, how do we all contribute and share of our wealth and resources and recognize Mm -hmm. that although I might not be called right now to show up and to be a full-time teacher every day, I can contribute some volunteer hours. I can support financially. That is part of our mission Mm -hmm. as people of faith is like, we all have to support the work so that the good things that are happening don't have to close down just because they don't have what they need to keep doing what's good. (laughs) Right. Right, right. And I've seen that in parish ministry in schools, there's this balance of, yes, we're a ministry, but we also have to keep the lights on. And yes, we're called to do this work, but I deserve a fair paycheck so that I can pay my bills. So we're a ministry and a business and using business language really irritates me, but that's why I'm not our CFO. (laughs) Someone's got to pay the bills. We need the money. And then you get into conversations about tuition at Catholic Mm. schools and are we leaving people out and shouldn't any Catholic family that wants be able to have their kids in a Catholic school? Yes. And it still costs money because those teachers deserve to have a fair wage and a retirement plan. (laughs) And the people working in the cafeteria and the people cleaning the floor, everyone deserves a fair wage right? and the right to be in a union if they want to. I mean, like that's (laughs) part of Catholic social teaching. So, So how do we uphold the principles of our faith, even in the spaces that we construct to do our mission to serve? This kind of like full circle back to one of the first questions about the women I have been surrounded by. So because schools and parishes can't pay, Mm. it historically falls to women to take these lower paying jobs. Mm -hmm. Then the cycle of, well, we don't do it for the money. We do it because God calls us to. And then that gets taken advantage of. Like, of course, I'm not doing it for the money. But again, like my own kids have to go to school. And I live (laughs) in LA. (laughs) LA is like the second most expensive city in the country. Then burnout, right? Like, Mm. oh, but if I leave and I get a better paying job, am I not dedicated? Am I not? It it just, it gets messy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm even thinking a little historically about this and how so many of the Catholic schools were founded by women religious, by mm-hmm. Catholic sisters who literally did it without pay. They put in all their sweat and energy and tears and goodness knows, backaches and everything into (laughs) building these Mm -hmm. institutions. But then when they stepped back, they retired, they moved on, they were called to other ministries, and they invited the lay folks like yourself to step into these roles. Unfortunately, the structures weren't sustainable to be able to pay the teachers fair wages. As you think about the future church and you think about your students, what role do Mm -hmm. you hope everyone can come to have? What role could the ordinary Catholic person have in helping to build up this church that's just, inclusive, fair, and honoring every person? And I think just the recognition that except for the very limited, like, sacramental moments that require ordination. Yeah. That a lay person can do all the things <laughs> and in many cases are better suited. I don't know what's in the curriculum for our local seminary, but I can't imagine that like marketing and development and finances and like all of these things that are needed to run a business. Mm. Also psychology and social work and, you know, let the priest be the priest and he can say mass and offer confessions, like all the the things that our ordination is needed for, and allow the rest of us to step in and fill those positions, not only because we're trained, but we want to. Like, Mm. these are gifts and talents. Do I wish I could write my parish a check for a million dollars? Yes, I wish. I will never be able to do that. But I can lead this committee or that committee. Again, Mm -hmm. my particular parish is really wonderful (laughs) about this. So I'm not, I don't want to complain about my parish, but the generic parish, right? There are lay men and women who can do the work and want to do the work, desperately want to do the work. And those gifts are being ignored and can only add richness. Mm. They can only make our church stronger, you know, and then the, the reality of there are fewer priests. So are we saying like it's better to close or downsize a parish than to have lay leadership? Are we saying it's better to get rid of a ministry than to have some a lay person lead it? That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So what I think I'm hearing you say is the importance of being collaborative and not clerical. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I mean, the the gone are the days of, oh, the good father says, and uh-huh. then we do. Like, that's just not, that's not going to cut it. Certainly not with, you know, millennials and Gen Z and mm. Gen Alpha. We've got to turn the hierarchical vertical structure mm. literally on its side so that we are a more horizontal, egalitarian structure. Mm. We have to. How do we do that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we just we just keep trying. We keep chipping away at it one parish at a time, one diocesan office at a time. I guess more systemically, how are 
young men in seminaries being trained and formed are because mm. as much horizontalness as I would like, it, we still exist in a church where ultimately if the pastor doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. Mm. It doesn't matter. So how are these men being formed to recognize, accept, and empower lay leadership? Yeah. And I don't know. I have no say. In yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> and that and that's another part of the mess. That, right. <laughs> so I think, you know, what you're talking about is interesting because a listener might hear what you're describing and say, wait a minute, are you staying to change it? Or are you staying because you belong? You're staying because you love it. I'm staying to call it to the fullest, best version of itself. Ah. Uh. Yeah. You have faith. You believe. Yes. You believe this. Yeah. I believe so much that I can't let the church default to anything less than the best, Mm. (laughs) to anything less than what it really ought to and can and perhaps originally was. Mm. Um, I guess I'm I'm calling the church to itself. How does Jesus invite and inspire you to do that work? When I read the Gospels, the ministry of of the historical man, like Jesus who walked on earth, was invitational, Mm. was transformative, was relational, was communal. Uh And so if we remember that... That's the example of, are we being all of those things? Are we being communal, even invitational, asking people to transform? It was also joyful. I mm-hmm. think that Jesus must have laughed a lot. He oh, must yeah. have had really great inside jokes <laughs> with his apostle. I think also to remember that something very important to me in my own family is that our faith is tied to joy, mm-hmm. not drudgery. Right, um, right. The church doesn't need any more grumps. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of a couple of things that that our pastor says on Sundays. One, when he calls us when it's time to to recite the Lord's Prayer. Mm. And he says, you know, we say our Father not to be reminded of God's gender, mm. but to be reminded that we are brothers and sisters. Mm. So I love that Jesus gave us those words and wants us to remember that relational peace. But that also when he talks about the Trinity, you know, and we make the sign of the cross that God's self exists in community, in dynamic, egalitarian community. So if that's what we believe that God is, that Jesus is, like, then that's what we have to be too. Right, right. <laughs> it makes me think, I mean, we were we were just at our uh, this Congress together in Los Angeles. It was a joy to watch you dance and, and to pray with you and <laughs> to share that sacred space with you. And I'm reminded of how I had this feeling, which it was my first time going to Congress, so maybe you don't have this feeling anymore. But I had this feeling throughout pretty much the whole thing that I was like, like a happy puppy and just wanting to go around and greet everyone and like, like jump up and down. I was so happy Uh and excited and delighting in the goodness of God in each person. It sounds so weird to say that out loud, (laughs) but that was the feeling. And I noticed that was what I was feeling in all the interactions in the prayer. And then I 
wondered, how do I bring that into my regular day-to-day interaction? When I'm with my other sisters and when I'm showing up to a meeting that's boring and frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. But the people there, they're expressions of God's goodness and love. And how can I Mm -hmm. receive them with joy and excitement and wonder and delight in the existence of every person uh, every single time? (laughs) Okay, now, okay, I I do want to say, though, knowing the like behind the scenes of the Congress, you know, the the two things you don't want to see being made are sausage and church, right? So (laughs) there's a lot of... (laughs) Right, right. Actually, interesting that you say that because two years ago, Congress happened only online because of COVID. Last year, we sort of did this like hybrid version. The mood of last year was much more somber. Mm. And we even wondered, will it ever go back? Will we feel how we felt before? Mm. I felt like this year we were. Like it took us a year to reconnect, to sort of mourn all who had been lost and all that was lost because of COVID. And we were still sort of in it. And this year we were like, it was like Easter, but it, it was like an Easter moment. So I'm glad that you received that, that you like noticed that. But important to remember that it's not always church isn't always like beautiful orchestras and choirs and dancers and amazing <laughs> homilies. No, and Sometimes amazing it is. art and yeah, oh, so much beauty is, and goodness. Yes, all of those things. And sometimes it makes you want to bang your head against the wall. Right, you show <laughs> up and you hear something oh. that totally offends you and you're angry and you have all the feelings and you want to leave immediately. <laughs> right, and you're like, the best thing I can say, you know, I have been to mass many a time where the best thing I can say is well I wasn't offended (laughs) that's yeah yeah that's it or Jesus was there so that was good (laughs) right there was that um but there it was you know Congress is one of those like mountaintop moments right like you can't live on the mountain you gotta come down yeah and I know that in about 12 months almost exactly 12 months I can climb back up to that mountain Mm. and I can sort of be rejuvenated and refreshed and restored so those moments are really important. There's a retreat that a lot of Catholic high schools do here in LA. I don't know if it's around the country, but the Kairos retreat. And mm-hmm. one of the like standard talks that an adult gives is called life graph, where you sort of chart your life moments, like the peaks and the valleys. Uh. And I, I haven't given that talk in years, but I've thought about how I would rework it now that I would talk about life being mostly a plateau. Mm. And every now and then you have the the mountaintop moments. Mm. And then sometimes you have the really deep moments. But for the most part, you're just here. I guess my point is you can't live in the peak all the time. Yeah. But yet we can reverence and honor each person as we go along. Yes. And I might not actually feel like a little happy puppy every time I see everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But I sure hope I'm smiling and kind, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And and do you remember even the person that irks you in that moment or all the time is still like, I still have to enter into relationship with that person with gentleness and with dignity Mm. and professionalism (laughs) and respect and all of those things. Right. Because they're a picture of God, too. Right. Yeah. Thank you, friend. Okay, so (laughs) I feel like we've really talked a lot about the messiness of church Mm -hmm. and building up the church and inclusive spaces. But I'm wondering what else you'd like to add about what 
the messiness of living the gospel and being a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think the messiness is part of it. Mm. It's not like, oh, I've got to wade through it to get to the other side. It's actually like, it is messy and it's okay. Yeah. It's gray. It's not black or white really ever. Yeah. To be able to hold the messiness is, I think, a sign of mature faith to just sit there and go like, it's okay. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. The both and the and, I think we're a both and church. I don't think we're an either or church. So it's okay. There's a a word that I really love. In fact, I think about getting it tattooed on my wrist, but I'm a chicken and I don't want to do it. Um, (laughs) But the word is Nepantla. And Nepantla is an Aztec word. And it means the space in between the liminal space, sometimes it refers to borders, but it's really the neither this nor that, neither here nor there, the the something in the middle. And it's used a lot like in, in Chicano literature and in, to talk about like Mexican-Americans. I'm, I'm not like fully American. I'm not fully Mexican. But but in, in a faith space, I like to think that my faith sits in the nepantla, in the, in the struggle between two things. It is okay. I'm not unhappy. I, in fact, I like the struggle. I think the struggle makes me grow. It pushes me to not settle for one or the other. So it's okay. The messiness is not the exception. The messiness is is the rule and we're going to work through it. (laughs) The struggle is sacred. Yes. And wow. And in a polarized society that loves to fight culture wars, as church, we are called to be reconciling people of the both and. The both and. I mean, again, at the core of our theology is Jesus was divine and human, both. The, the, The kingdom of God is both imminent and transcendent, is here, is now, and to come. Like, we are a both and church. Amen. Everything about our theology is both and. So then to try and minimize things to either or is not compatible with our faith. It just isn't. Amen. (laughs) Well, that's so exciting. That makes me really stretch my imagination and stir up all my creative juices about how I can help foster a more inclusive and welcoming and wholesome church. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. This has been like just the highlight maybe of my whole year. Thank you. Oh, thanks for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.